Hey everyone, John here. Just a quick word of warning. Uh, we will be spoiling this film in its entirety, so if you have not seen this film and you don't want it spoiled for you, uh, just hit pause real quick and go and watch the movie and then come back and enjoy the show. Welcome to Surviving Chick Flicks. I'm John. And I'm Sammy. And it's Sammy's Christmas month. Yay! And there was much rejoicing. And, oh, Lord, Sammy has kicked us off with a doozy of a film that we'll get into. Love at the Christmas Table. Which was an experience. All I have to say is I really... I feel like I took it easy on you, and it could have been so, so much worse. Uh, having seen several Lifetime and uh, Hallmark Christmas movies against my will, fair. Well, we'll play the trailer, and we're going to get into this weirdly stacked cast that we're <laughs> that is in this film. So we'll play the trailer real quick and get into it. I'm Sam Reed, and tonight could be the biggest night of my life. Hello? Those pants do not mount the most passionate defense of your rear. Ow! Easy, easy, easy. This is Catherine Patton. I've known her for 30 years. We've been going to the same Christmas party every year since we were kids. That doesn't sound very wise to me! Warning. <laughs> My forehead says Felice, doesn't it? Oh! Yeah. Until next year. Alright. You got a second? more of an internship. Take the job. I got it, Evie! <laughs> you must be Catherine. Boyfriend? Yeah. Tons of them. I know what it's like to see the person that you love with the person they've chosen. And it's not you. You are not wired for contentment. You're stuck. Same town, same job. But it's normal to ignore your family all year? Come on, open up, cat! What are you so afraid of? Go home, Sam. Stalker mom. Now. <laughs> Everything's fine over here. She's always been the girl. So, what do we miss? <laughs> All right, Love at the Christmas Table, starring Danica McKellar, a.k.a. Winnie Cooper, Dustin Milligan, a.k.a. Ted from Schitt's Creek, Leah Thompson, a.k.a. Marty McFly's mom, Scott Patterson, a.k.a. the FBI agent from Soft 4, <laughs> Uh, Brian Husky, a.k.a. Regular Size Rudy from Bob's Burgers. Alexandra Paul, a.k.a. Stephanie from 
Baywatch and Vivica or Viva Blanca, aka girl with slightly unpronounceable name that I saw naked on Spartacus, and directed <laughs> by Rachel Lee Goldenberg. People in this movie ha- and even behind the camera have worked before and since this film. Yeah, and I I have to say I take issue with the whole. Um... He's not just FBI agent from Saw. He is probably most well-known for being uh, Luke from Gilmore Girls. So I just have to say that. But that's how I know him, sort of. Not necessarily an expert on Saw, but he was in there. So I think with this film, we probably hit the trifecta. For those of you who don't know, if you go back to our original episode, a chick flick is any movie that is pandering to women, any movie that was written or directed by a female, uh, or any movie with a strong female lead. And I think this kind of hits all three. Best life. You are forced to watch Hallmark movies for the entire month of December, and you can watch no other movies. Yeah, I could probably tolerate it as long as I'm given a one-day reprieve to watch Die Hard. So, <laughs> And White Christmas. Die Hard and White Christmas. Deal. Speaking of which, speaking of which why are we not talking about Die Hard or White Christmas? Um, I don't know about White Christmas, but Die Hard does not fit into our criteria. But uh, today's film comes to us from the good people at Lifetime, who uh, a television channel that... Uh, is Joe Bob Briggs approved for being the basically the only place still making exploitation films in the 21st century? So, yay. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is not exploitation. And this film is also brought to us... Have you, have you ever heard of The Asylum? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, The Asylum... Are, the first time I watched this film, which we'll get into when, you, when the first time you watched it, but my first time was over the weekend, and... The first thing I see is The Asylum Presents, and I start gut laughing because The Asylum is an independent film studio that got originally known for making what were called mockbusters. And what these were were like Z-grade, low-budget rip-off films of other bigger famous films. Like when the Transformers released a new movie, they released Transmorphers. Lord oh, of the yeah. Rings, yeah. Lord of the Rings, they had Age of the Elves or or something of the Elves because originally they did Hobbits and got super sued. The only one I've ever seen and I actually own because I met the uh, star of this film was called Paranormal Entity, which was their ripoff of Paranormal Activity. So a classy production company. Yes and no. They have several offshoots of what they do because they, they have the Mockbuster line. They also have this weird line of, um, in the early days of Netflix streaming, they made a bunch of uh, TNA comedies that were not funny at all. But they also have a line of faith-based films, including the high school musical parody, Sunday School Musical. Oh, no. Oh, yes. They did kind of more from direct-to-video trash to working a lot in television, particularly with Sci-Fi Channel and Lifetime. Lifetime, they have released a bunch of um, romantic comedies and things of that nature. And with Sci-Fi, they they uh, produced the television show Z Nation, which was a zombie television show. I never saw it. By all accounts, it's okay. And 
uh, a little film series called Sharknado. Oh. So, yes. So <laughs> there is a loose connection between this film and Sharknado because the same people that wrote the checks to make this film made made Sharknado. So never thought I would. <laughs> I may make some enemies, but I'm going to go out on a limb, never having seen Sharknado, and say this was the better film. But that's just me. I may have a tendency to like, what's the word y'all like to use? Uh, crap. I like crap every now and then. Films that are not necessarily good in the way that, you know, good pe- that we watch good films, but off the wall crap. And I've never seen a single Sharknado film. So I'm going to go with that's debatable. It's kind of amazing that Sharknado was there, always there on television. And I would go out of my way to watch stuff like Tammy and the T-Rex instead. Oh, my God. Which we're going to do on the show. And you take issue with Nicholas Sparks. I have no problem. All right, Sammy, you want to tell him what this masterpiece that that is allegedly better than Sharknado is about? (laughs) Adding along as the ages are going along, I figured out the sort of incorrect timeline of this film. Okay, well, first I'll get into the first time I saw this movie was kind of a accident, and I'm going to call it a happy accident. I oh, was... not by force? No, it was not by force. I was uh, looking for something to watch, and occasionally I get in the mood for like a specific type of movie, and I was in the mood for some cheesy romance movie, uh, and I couldn't find anything on Netflix, so I went over to Prime. And I saw the movie, and I know Danica McKellar from, um, I actually don't know her from The Wonder Years. I know her from other Hallmark movies, because she's kind of become similar to, like, Lacey Chabert and CCB. She's kind of a Hallmark staple. And yeah. so I thought, okay, now, I, I knew who Scott Patterson was from uh, Gilmore Girls, so I thought, okay, well, I'll give this a shot. I knew Danica McKellar as Winnie Cooper, because that show came out right around the same time i was the same age as or close to the same age as uh fred savage her and not marilyn manson because there's a rumor yeah. that, that that guy was marilyn manson and he's not i i think that's pretty common a lot of people know her from that whenever the whenever the deck the hallmark podcast does a review on one of her movies they just refer to her as Winnie cooper but I was pleasantly surprised, and, and we'll get into it when we talk about our favorite things, and I'll probably mention it when we get to the scene, but there's a particular scene in this movie that sold me on the whole movie. So, um, a movie I was already kind of, I mean, it pretty much had me from the start. I liked the introduction. The thing about Lifetime is, it, I mean, it's similar to Hallmark in this way, but I, I think it's even more extreme. When Lifetime does it well, they do it really well. So when they hit on when they hit on a good movie and a good storyline, I think they do an excellent job. When they do it poorly, it's really really bad. It's unwatchable. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I just you know it was kind of a happy accident, and this one turned out really good. And the director of uh, this movie, this is not her only uh, lifetime film film for her, but uh, in 2015 she did that uh, or. I, th- I think it was 2015, but she did A Deadly Adoption with Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig, the Lifetime movie that everyone thought was a parody of Lifetime movies, and it turned out to be a real Lifetime movie that just happened to have Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig in it. Really? 
and she did a film called uh, Unpregnant, which is an HBO Max original film, and it was about a teenager that asked her friend to drive her across state to get an abortion. I have a feeling that was going to be the most controversial film of 2020 until Netflix brought cuties to the plate and just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah, she did that, and she's done a lot of shorts, I think a lot of stuff online, but she had one film go theatrical this year and one film go to HBO Max. Um, She did that um, new updated musical version of Valley Girl that came out this year with the girl from Happy Death Day. Why don't we get into the 30-year courtship that is this movie? Yeah, being one of the biggest flaws of this movie because it's not quite a 30-year courtship. When you're lifetime or Hallmark, you have to skip over the details because if you didn't, you wouldn't be a made-for-television movie. And weirdly enough, she's released two films this year. Um, This was clearly a I'm getting my uh, Director's Guild card. So, uh, Love at the Christmas Table was released in 2012, and it starts off uh, in present day when Sam, played by Dustin Milligan, returns home for the first time in five years. He returns to EB's um, Elizabeth, played by Leah Thompson's house, uh, where he spent Christmas Eve as a child every single year. And he explains how EB's, uh, it's Christmas all year. She leaves her lights and decorations up all year. And he immediately runs into Kat, who Sam explains that he's known Kat since he was five when their dad started a furniture company together after Kat's mom died. And that's how okay. we're introduced to Danica McKellar. Okay, and that, the movie gets set wrong right away because the first scene is 1984 when Sam is four. So he can't even tell his own story correctly. Uh, and then the section. I miss so you're gonna have to explain how how you know how do you notice that okay in the very first scene all right this film is told in stages by the age of the main character Sam and he there is a line in the very beginning that uh it began in 1984 which is this year that Kat's mom passed away so by simply following the rule of 84 and (laughs) And assuming that present day is 2012, yes, and he now, should ha- he should have been according to the ages 32. That part, the math lined up. It's just what they did in between point. It's kind of like did you ever take a math test and you got the right answer but you got the wrong, but you got there by the wrong way so you got partial credit. Yes. All right, that's the timeline of this movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean that that makes sense and. You know, she says stuff that's confusing as well, because as we'll get to it, in the one scene when they're walking together, he said, oh, he told her, he goes, you've been hitting me like this for 20 years. Well, when that scene occurred, they're only, it's the year where they're both 26. And she goes, no, it's 25, which would be impossible, because that means she would have been hitting him in the arm since she was one. And they established, or he established in the beginning of the movie, that they became friends when uh, their dad started the company the year Kat's mom died uh, when they were four, I guess. Mm -hmm. I thought it was five. She rounded up. (laughs) She rounded up. Yeah. But he was more accurate when he said 20. Yeah. Yeah. And Dana McKellar, and in Dana McKellar, like, you know, a math genius, or is that Topanga from Boy Meets World? I can't. One of them's like, 
One of them's like wicked smart. And I was oh. just like, leave it to a Lifetime movie to get something right and then mm. actually screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> With a line that made absolutely no sense. But that's something I guess we'll get into because I was going to say, you know, age is kind of relative in this movie because when you're watching the movie, did you feel like there was an age difference between them? Did you, did you feel like it was awkward at all? Yeah, and it's only because I know that uh, only because I know that Dana McKellar, Danica McKellar, God, she has a hard name. Like Winnie Cooper. <laughs> That's why they say just Winnie Cooper. It's easier to say. Winnie Cooper is about a year or two older than me, and I don't really know how old Dustin Milligan is, but it did feel like she was very much an adult. Most awkwardly, whenever they were playing teenagers. Yeah, try um, try 10 years of an age difference. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he was born in 1985, which would make him 35, and she was born mm-hmm. in 1975, making her 45. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't realize she was that much older than me. Yeah, to, to be honest, I, I agree with you. I think when they were teenagers, so the movie kind of speeds through their early years pretty fast. Um, there's just a couple clips when they're, you know, it goes through how they meet when they were four or yeah. five, depending on what the movie. According to <laughs> 1984 and age four, I'm going with the time with, with what appears on the screen. It's 1984. And apparently it's the first Christmas um, to happen after Kat's mom died, and um, we, you know, and Christmas is held every year in EB's Christmas House of the Mental Break. <laughs> yeah, and they and they meet in what I think is it's one of the things that hooked me. One of the cutest scenes where uh, mm-hmm. he's coloring under the table, and she comes over to say hi, and they're just little kids. And so he gives her his uh, colors to color with him, and then their parents find mm-hmm. him later asleep. And then it yeah. fast forwards uh, five years to when they're ten, and he tries to kiss her, and she stabs him with a fork. Well, you you miss <laughs> no you you skipped uh, no that's oh, at age no, thirteen that's right. at they're... age t- at age ten they're <laughs> drunk on the alcohol free rum cake. That's which is, right. Which one of my one of my favorite moments is uh, Brian uh, Sam's dad going. Can you tell him there's no booze in it? <laughs> no. And then that's right. That's right. That happens. And then when they're thirteen, uh, yeah. she's reading on the couch, and he comes over and stabs her, and she stabs him with a fork when he tries to kiss her. And then yeah. we fast forward five more years to when they're eighteen, and I. That's kind of when the movie starts, and. I agree with you. Like when they're teenagers, there seems to be a bit more of an age difference. Obviously, yeah. she appears to be more mature than him. But the older they get, the less I see it. Well, anyway, can we kind of gloss over the fact that she stabbed him with a fork. Can we just yeah bring that up? Like you'd think that that would you know I don't know maybe bring in into some Christmas traditions. Like hey, let's not spend the holidays with the girl who stabbed me. Yeah, it's a weird thing that the movie kind of glosses over and acts like it's not a big deal. She stabbed him in the leg with a fork, which... It is also funny. (laughs) 
<laughs> that interaction might explain, and it's kind of funny too because he never mentions it when he goes through the reasons they dislike each other. Um, yeah, it's like literally anything other than the stabbing. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of a nice segue into when they see each other again when they're eighteen at again at Evie's uh, Christmas Eve party. Mm-hmm. She goes in to check on him because uh, her dad makes him. Makes yeah, because <laughs> her dad makes her, and he just seems kind of down. He's avoiding everybody and uh, reading a book yeah. in the kitchen. And she goes in to check on him, and he's like, "You know, why are you here? We're not, not friends." And then he goes through a list of things that they've done or that she's done. Uh, gave him Which, stitches when he was five. Yeah, let's see, she physically saw. Uh, she caused him. To, like, Grave injury when he was five. Um, let's see. She told all of his friends that he wet the bed until he was 12 and that pitted them against them. While and she dated was... them. Oh, yeah. And there was one other thing she did. I didn't write it down. But yeah, I, I liked that. And the one thing I liked about that scene is it's a little mm-hmm. bit of exposition, but they do it in a good way. I mean, yeah. I think it was I think it was well executed because it kind of establishes that they have a relationship outside of just one night a year. Yeah, except from this point forward. It, that's true. Possible timeline flaw. Uh, he's 18 and already in college. I think that's possible. But he's gone. He's away at college. Yeah. I know people that graduated, like my mom, for example, graduated when she was 17, so she would have started college in August, and she would have turned 18 over the summer, so mm. I, think, I think it makes sense. All right, I'll give it that one. And after about the sixth day, he'd be sick of brownies. <laughs> right, and she got, she got the girl to go out with him, who ended yeah. up showing him, as she affectionately her t- puts it, her tractor... Because it's a Lifetime movie, and I have to say, that's a new one. And the sad thing is, I think she genuinely means tractor. That crossed my mind. That crossed my mind that that actually might be true. Because they're they're in a small town. It could be some farming going on. <laughs> also, what they did on that tractor is, you know, you know, beyond the TV 14 rating I'm sure this movie got. I love this scene because I think it kind of... Like I said, it kind of starts a relationship. I mean, they have all this background. I know he says they're not friends, but it establishes, I mean, that's what their friendship was. They had Mm -hmm. this banter. They kind of picked at each other. But it was obvious they really cared about each other. Yeah. From the get-go. And it takes nothing at all. It just just takes her firing back with all the stuff she actually did for him for them to Mm -hmm. suddenly get along. And they go into Evie's movie room where this movie really dates itself because they go through her VHS collection. For the children listening, that's what you used to put in a VCR, which is this ancient box that you used to be able to put these movies in and uh, watch them. And then you had to rewind them before you returned them to Blockbuster. Yep. And you know they still make VHS, right? (laughs) Yes. I mean, they're, you know... Usually, like, small runs, but they still do it. <laughs> um, which, I, I, I do like the scene of them, 
going through all those videos and also doing with it while they're watching them. <laughs> yeah, and I like the nostalgia of this scene because it has a good it has a good callback to when they were five because mm-hmm. after they finally settle on a movie after E B catches them and tells them to clean everything up, they're which, uh, <laughs> which by the way, one of the uh VHSs that uh, EB picks up and explains the plot to them uh, is very clearly, if you pause it and stare at it just right, a copy of Bad Santa, which came out oh, in 2006. Really? Yes. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I recognize that cassette. <laughs> which I think she called Christmas hijinks. Because, you know, they're not going to use real movie titles. No, copyright. Oh, and their dads find them asleep on the couch. Yeah, just like mm-hmm. they did when they were an indeterminate age that we have that we cannot figure out. Allegedly four. <laughs> Allegedly four. Um, and the dads do uh, what any dad would do whenever he catches their ch- uh, children sleeping together. Draw on their faces. <laughs> Which I just gotta say, I like the chemistry between Brian Husky and Scott Patterson. Like, because you gotta remember, my my go to for both of them is either R rated comedies or Saw. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that there's these two goofy dorks, I I thought it was kind of sweet. I think it's great. You know, and what's clear to me, one of the things I loved about this movie is you can tell. You can tell when you're watching these type of movies if the cast was, you know, we're just here because we got to make some money and we got to do this movie, or if they're genuinely having fun with the story they're telling. And I, I think this whole cast was having a blast with the story. Like, they all yeah. worked well together. They all had really, really good chemistry. And and the cast is very much a good balance of, and I don't mean this is an insult, has been. And not there yet, because at this time, you know, people like Danica, people like Winnie Cooper and and Marty McFly's mom were past the point of them being A-listers. And guys like Brian Husky, Dustin Milligan, they hadn't gotten there yet. I agree. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily insulting about that. I just think it was a good mix of people. And... Mm-hmm. You know, despite the age difference, which is, like I said, 10 years, I think that, and I've seen, keep in mind, I've seen a lot of these movies, so I've seen every version of really good chemistry to really bad chemistry between the leads in these movies, and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's enough to make or break the movie. I think that Dustin Milligan and Winnie Cooper had some of the best chemistry I've seen in these type of movies. W- Which I is interesting, agree. despite their age difference. I mean, they they had a they had a really good rapport that just kind of yeah. I don't know. I think it elevated the material. It elevated it to watchable. And they, and they had a good job of they did a good job of this kind of awkward. You can tell they like each other, but they have this very weird friendship slash acquaintance ship, yeah. and they don't really know how to proceed. Which I think that after they wake up the next morning and figure out they've been drawn on. Um, mm-hmm. they do a good job of illustrating when they go outside and they're kind of like, so what happens now? And they kind of make this deal that they're going to come back to EB's every Christmas Eve for the next 10 years to make it a tradition. Which does not technically happen. 
No, it we'll doesn't, because because they both miss at least one year. And also, that, that's that is a hard commitment to commit to doing something ten years in a row. Uh, no, it's true, uh, yeah. especially when you know at their age when they've got college and they've got mm-hmm. you know jobs and stuff like that. But she works in town, so it's much less of a commitment yeah. for her to do. But well, I mean, she they said do something go, about how he feels about her. But they do commit to it very pretty hard for like the next two to three years. Because um, we have eight, you know, at age nineteen, they're playing drinking games and best life in front of the children. At age twenty, in the year two thousand, uh, they have the indoor snowball fight, and it, it begins with a Conan the Barbarian reference. And that's the moment. It's like, is this movie trying to rope John back into it? <laughs> Can we stop on this scene for a moment? Because it's simultaneously one of my favorite scenes, and at the mm-hmm. same time, the biggest like, but why? Scene in the whole movie because I love the line and that little kid. Yeah. He delivered that line so perfectly. I, I just wish the kid had delivered it in an in an Arnold impression. Yeah, because that, that's really the only way to deliver that line. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And he, I think that the little kid did. But why are they having an indoor, not even snowball fight, indoor ice fight? It's snowing outside. They established this very early on. They live in Illinois. There's snow on the ground every single year. Why are they not having a snowball fight outside? They literally got coolers of outdoor snow, brought it inside the EB's house to have an indoor snow fight for no reason. Um, probably because Lifetime's insurance would only pay for an interior <laughs> snowball fight versus an exterior where the child <laughs> actors could get hurt. <laughs> also, they paid for that set, so they were going to use it. Well, but, but I, they I, had plenty of outdoor shots. I know, but but at the same time, it doesn't get that you know nice comedic button at the end of uh, Evie coming in and giving them mops and brooms to clean up, <laughs> just without yeah, a word, <laughs> just still drinking her booze. Honestly, I feel like that is the I that scene only serves two purposes: to have that one little shot with Evie and to establish that. Cat and Sam are very much children. Which I think is further established in the next year when they leave the adult uh, table. Okay, but real quick, (laughs) before they leave the adult table, this is where things go wrong. And also better for the movie. All right. So if we're doing the math, they're age 21. And if they were eight and if they were four in 1984, what year are we in? 2001. Two, yeah, 2000. And... and they are talking current events. Because this scene should have been while during the year 2000, because they're talking about hanging chads, explaining the plot of Survivor, and explaining Castaway. And not, I don't know, the World Trade Center. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's really but, weird. So they wait, screwed wait, wait. Up. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's right. That's right. They would have been born in 1980, so it would have been 2001. And it's it's December. So you think they would have been discussing... Yeah. Yeah. So, I think they just either did Unless they were five... I thought they were five in that first scene. Nope, they were four. It's, so it says four on the screen because I thought he said they met when they were five. 
That's what he said. But on the screen, it says you're four. It says they were four, and that they met in 1984. So by oh. by by my math, that is technically the Christmas after 9/11. Now, here's where the screw up works in their favor. I don't think that there's a good way to mention 9-11 in this movie, so <laughs> it's just not. Well, that's fair. Like, I missed over all the stuff they were discussing anyway. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, that was my first election to vote in, so things like hanging chads were very much, you know, relevant conversations at that point, because at that point, the election had just been called that year. <laughs> Yeah, you know, honestly, if they had just fixed and done year five instead of year four, it would have fixed everything because it would have been 2000. Yeah. Oh. Or, or, or just, you know, backed everything up a year. And that's really the only thing that happened in year 21. Yeah, it really kind of is. But um, I love the fact that uh, as they're pulling a bender from Breakfast Club, it's just instead of the, you know, ceiling tiles, they're under the table, and he's telling a joke the entire way. We move on now to age 22 in 2002, I assume. And Sam's got a hard decision to make uh, because he's got an internship at a newspaper. But he can't decide if he wants to go through with the internship or stay at home and take a pause and hang out with Cat. After getting um, some terrible advice from his father, in which his father tells him that he's not wired for contentment. His dad's not wrong. Because as we'll learn throughout the years, you know, as it goes along, he, he doesn't stick with the same job. Now, to be fair, in the world of journalism, it isn't uncommon for people to jump from one paper to another paper, to a magazine, to a website, to this, to that. I mean, that's not uncommon but there are also people that grind away at that job for 20 30 40 years you know that doesn't bother me so much really i think his dad is right but i think what it is is he honestly sam and cat shouldn't work i mean they really shouldn't because they want extremely different things it's apparent that he wants to be with her but what he wants is for her to come with him he yeah. wants her to leave their hometown as badly as he does and because he wants to go out in the world and experience things and be a writer. And yeah. he also wants to be with her, but she wants to stay and work at her dad's business. But to be fair, did they ever really have that com- that conversation? I know they had conversations, but just that one, like, I want to experience the world and I, I want to experience it with you. I mean, there's a way, I mean, there's a compromise somewhere there. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a conversation like every other romantic comedy ever in existence. There's a conversation to be had here that probably solves a lot of problems, but mm-hmm. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because they are, at this point, they're 22. So I don't yes. think he's, he especially is not mature enough to, I think, put words to what he's going through because I don't think he even recognizes it. And mm-hmm. I agree with her. I think what he says is insulting without him meaning to insult her, which is he wants to stay and be with her, but he sees staying there as taking a pause on yeah. his life, as taking a break and avoiding his responsibility where she wants him to stay because he wants to be with her, not because he right. sees their hometown as something temporary. Yeah. 
but and there is a way to finesse that that conversation of of the moving here and staying here is the pause, but the time with her is not the pause. That that is the beginning of the conversation of where do we go from here in our whatever this is. <laughs> Yeah. And on the other side, I get why Kat never asks him to stay. I understand it because what mm-hmm. she doesn't want is to be the person he gave up his career for and have him resent her and it not work out. So I understand why she doesn't do it. But on on the other side of it, I feel like he's sitting there waiting for her to say mm-hmm. stay. And she yeah. doesn't do it because she doesn't want him to resent her. So she pushes mm-hmm. him to go. Yeah. And, and, and if his career is really interested in journalism... He could have, you know, gone to work for the the paper that serviced that community. Lord, I mean, whenever I was taking journalism classes, people I I went to, you know, junior college with turned right around and after they left were the editors of a local paper. I mean, albeit it was a small, you know, one day a week paper, but I mean, it was still they were an editor in their field. Yeah, and or even he could have if he wanted to. They didn't establish where the city, this town was in Illinois, but maybe Toronto. was it? You it's know, maybe it yeah, maybe it wasn't that far away from Chicago. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't think Illinois is that big of a state. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe he could have just gone to Chicago. Yeah, well, because you gotta remember, we're in Texas, so you know you could drive sixteen hours and still be in the same state. And and I think I mean that's to the point where I think this conversation that they have and simultaneously don't have is why he doesn't come home the following year. But also, like you said, they're not, he's not, I don't think either of them are at 22 mature enough to have the, you know, life changing conversation. Uh, No, not at all. And also by this point, hasn't social media become a thing? I mean, they could have stayed connected that way instead of just, the one night a year, you know, come back for the holidays. Yeah. And I think to yeah. a degree they do, because at one point I can't remember the context in which she does it. She mentions them having uh, spoken over the phone. Yeah. So I think to some degree they did stay connected. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it was as much as they could have. Or should have. Yeah. Or should have arguably. Well, and they say connected, but as we learn through the movie, they talk, but they don't communicate because neither of them really understands what the other does as we come to find out. Not at all. But yeah, but he doesn't come home the next year, but she is anticipating him coming. And really, this is the year that she and Ashley kind of bond more because Ashley, with the help of the kids, ties her up and drags her to a party. Yeah, Ashley is by by far my least favorite character in this whole movie because she serves no purpose and is well just there to be a roadblock in their relationship. And occasionally show people her tractor. But the next year, Sam returns, and this time, he's not alone. Enter blonde lady from Spartacus. Enter a purposeless side character who does nothing other than become an obstacle between the two leads getting together. Yeah. Yeah. Had had she been present for any other holiday besides this one, I, I could have seen her as a real character, but... 
you know, instead it was just, you know, like, hey, I've seen you naked and you're gone. That's basically her. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not unique to this genre of movie, but it's something that always gets me is Kat's reaction to him bringing home another girl is obvious. Like, it's apparent that she's Mm -hmm. jealous. And the fact that he is so oblivious, he can't see that Mm -hmm. is is frustrating. To the point where it's either that or he recognizes it, but he just doesn't care. Yeah. I think the better part of this scene is uh, the purpose it serves is between her and EB when EB takes her upstairs. Since she can obviously Mm -hmm. see that she's upset. And explains to her uh, the connection with the vague reference to great expectations of yeah how how and why we get the explanation for how and why her house is always decorated at Christmas because she was introduced to Cat's mother on Christmas Eve and she was in love with Cat's father yeah and that's when she suffered the clear mental breakdown and. Lives became in what I can, yeah. I was well. I was going to go with the slightly more insulting. Lives what I assume is in your head <laughs> most of the year. I'm sorry. Excuse me. You're you like Christmas that much? I would assume you would be okay with Christmas year round. Uh. I mean, I think I would, to be honest. But I I get it, and I understand what people say with the fact that it's only special because it happens once a year. And so I do agree with that. Uh, And I like the other seasons. Spring is the only season I think is purposeless. Yeah, well, it's because we live in Texas, and we don't really have a spring. It goes from fall to winter to... Allergies. Yeah, to allergies and summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if we ever had true spring, we but might appreciate That being said, I do think this is really smart. Now, when I was in high school, I had to, I was in, our senior play was Great Expectations, mm-hmm. and I hated it because I am not a Charles Dickens fan. Apart from A Christmas Carol, I, I can't get through a Charles Dickens book. Well, you know why? Because Dickens was literally paid by the word. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. So much of what he says is somehow leads Kat to randomly asking out Trevor. Um, also, she gives her that shot that is very clearly NyQuil and red food coloring. <laughs> well, I mean, although I have to say, it's pretty cool that she has a bar in her office. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? Yes, yes, I would. Yeah. And, and Evie is always drinking in this in this movie. <laughs> well, I think we've established that she is. I mean, Evie's one of my favorite characters, but oh, uh, I, I mean, I love Leah Thompson. I mean, Back to the Future is one of the great films of my you know my youth. So I you know I've always kind of had a thing for her. Even though I didn't really like Back to the Future 2 and 3. And yeah, I'm saying that publicly. <laughs> I I like 
the purpose this scene served with getting Kat to do what she did. But the whole Kat dating Trevor thing is probably the biggest timeline flaw I have in this entire movie. The The reason being, so she asked Trevor out, they leave the party, and it's obvious that Sam is jealous at the same time because she makes a big deal out of it. So the next year, uh, year 26, she's at the beginning of the party, Sam hasn't arrived yet. She's talking with her dad, and... She said, I'm just, you know, so humiliated. He took a shower at my house and then literally left to go to propose to her. Which, am I the only one that makes no sense to you? I'm not going to call myself an expert on Hallmark or Lifetime or even romantic comedies in general. But isn't it a trope that, you know, the main character does get dumped for an idiot who moves on pretty quickly? (sighs) I guess, but the same, like, the same night he leaves her house and he goes and gets engaged to somebody else. I don't know. It just, wait, and it's a small thing, but it just seems wait, weird. Wait, he got engaged the same night or within the same, within 365 days? No, I mean, what I didn't understand is she acts like he came over to her house, which establishes they have some type of close relationship, I guess sometime in the next year. And uses her shower, and then immediately goes to, I think she said, like, a steak and shake or something. I don't... And Mm -hmm. proposes to this girl. And you know the proposal is fairly recent, because he's showing off the ring to everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And also, they may have been nothing more than friends with benefits. It is. It's possible. It just seemed weird to me. Really, we, we get almost as much time with him as we do Rebecca. Yeah. No, so. it's true, and it, it's kind of a throwaway thing. And on and obviously, you know, um, it gives her it gives her the moment she needs with her with her dad, which is you yeah. know sweet and establishes how close they are. Which I also like because in the the next moment, it's the same thing with Sam and his mom because mm-hmm. it's clear she recognizes how he feels about Cat when she brings up you know. Just yeah. comforting Kat after her breakup is the entire reason he came home and moved his career-defining interview. Yeah. Uh, which is a pretty big gesture. Yeah. And although he is correct that career-defining interviews do come more than once. so <laughs> um, I guess that's true. Yeah. But also, I, I think maybe the... Trevor and Rebecca characters like I mean this is a made for TV film so this has to fit within a 90 minute window window if this was um stretched out to 2 hours and theatrical we might have gotten a little bit more time with them and clarity and they would have been more obstacles than just things that happened over the course of 3 decades that's true i mean and also why wasn't rebecca coming with him I mean, was, uh, was she working? Uh, was that even a dropped line? Because I don't even remember why she wasn't there. I, I don't exactly remember either. I don't know if it was they she was they had other plans or something, but she didn't. He says it was her idea for him to come. So I, they don't really establish why she's not there, but it's it's okay. necessary for the film. I I don't think it was really her idea at all. No, it's like his mother said um, in the, one of the best lines in the movie, because only Lifetime can do this. At, at Hallmark, you cannot get away with the use of the word dick. 
Yeah. And she almost gets it out. Which she gets 75% of dick out, which is still dick. She because just dropped this, the K. Yeah. Literally, because I watch most things with subtitles because I'm half deaf. And also, I kind of like to have an idea of what's being said. Uh, so, because so, I can catch things that, that way. And the closed captioning literally was like, D-I-C dash. It's like, really? <laughs> you didn't even try. <laughs> well, and also, you know, at this point, she couldn't have said dick anyway, because Evie has established the swear jar. Tis true. Which yeah. is just their delicate way of pretending that all these people are adults and they normally swear. Yeah. Well, and they uh, do, they get in some mild swearing at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> So it's just the furthering of EB's mental break. <laughs> this or sorry, or no, 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 by no, this point, ahead. or by this point, she's actually watched that bad Santa cassette, and she's like, "No more profanity ever." <laughs> uh, so I have to say, so this next scene. Is my favorite scene in the entire movie for multiple reasons. Oh, God. Really? Uh, (laughs) So I already have a feeling I'm going to have to defend this, but I'm going to make a bold, I'm going to make a bold claim. So this, I liked the movie up until this point. There was nothing wrong with it. I I liked where it was going, but this Mm -hmm. scene sold me on the movie. And Are, are we talking the dance number? Yes, we're talking the dance member. Not only is it my favorite scene in this movie, which is, it's hard, it's, it says something because it has a tough time competing with the very ending scene and also their scene in the bed of the truck, um, which sounds a lot more promiscuous than it actually is, but it's not. Yeah. Um, it is probably my favorite scene in a Lifetime at Hallmark movie, and it pushes it for one of my favorites in a romantic comedy. It's not there. It's not my favorite, but it's it's close. I think it's extremely well executed. I love the song. Oh, I, I do love the song. My, my only issue is with it is I, I get the dance number, and when done well, I think a dance number in a movie really works. But it's just... There's that part of my brain that won't shut up whenever everyone is dancing and they're dancing outside. And it's like, the record's playing inside. What are you people dancing to? No. I mean, and that's that's one of the things the movie actually did right. So I loved it because, well, okay, the one, the one goof I did think was funny. So he's obviously trying to cheer her up. And uh, um, they, they put on, he has one of the little girls put on this record and he asks her to dance. And they're dancing in front of everybody at first. And then... They go outside. So the only like goof I thought about it is, so they're dancing and she opens or he opens the door and she goes outside, and then they're surprised when the music isn't playing. Like they look up, like why isn't the music playing? Which makes no sense because you just went outside. Yeah. So why would the music be playing? But uh, E B plays it on the outside speaker. She turns on the outside speaker, so that's why the dancing outside doesn't bother me. Because oh, okay. she has speakers on the outside of her house. Like, 
I didn't catch that in either viewing, so that's why I'm like, what yeah. are you dancing to? Yeah, she it's turns like, on the the little speakers outside and the music comes on. It's like I was I was sitting there thinking like they're dancing to nothing. Is this what the cramps saw whenever they played in that <laughs> mental institution? It's just like there's <laughs> a great punk band, uh, the cramps, and they played a mental in a mental institution and wrote a song called Beautiful Gardens about the experience. No, it, it's um, no, it's it's one detail that I think that they actually get right. Would I think that you know she wouldn't have felt that way had she not similarly ha- felt that he felt that way about her too, and then Cat's mom came along, but they would have to call it Baby Fishmouth, and we'll get there one day. <laughs> like I, that's that's one of the ones I am saving because I I love that movie so much. <laughs> so. so. So the next Christmas, we kick up, we kick the things off with drunk karaoke. And then it, and, it took us so long to get there. I know. Now, for you, I, I know you're not a fan of cringe humor, but I know I was cringing <laughs> during this. Honestly, it, the context of of the cringe humor in that scene was so minuscule and so quick. It was it didn't bother me because. It was irrelevant. They only had it in there just to get Kat and Sam out of the house. Yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, Evie's clearly drunk, you know, doing, uh, I don't even know what that song is called. I just, (laughs) but I've only heard it for 30 years. Uh, I guess Ragtime Gal, and then everyone else takes a turn, and the kids are like, hell with this. But. Which I mean, no one seems to, uh, no one seems to miss them, and I do, no. I do actually love that they, despite the fact that they're grown adults, their parents still call them kids. Yeah. Well, and that's something that doesn't change. I don't think. Yeah. But do you think that maybe they were intentionally doing bad karaoke um, to get them out of the house? I mean, it's possible because it does lead to a, a, a discussion that's very necessary and simultaneously kind of bothersome. Yeah. Well, and by this point, Sam and Rebecca have broken up. I'm assuming she came to her senses. Well, it said he broke up with her. In the back of her head, she, you, you know she knew, like, what is taking so long? Why are we just, why haven't we gotten to this point yet? Uh, well, yeah, and I think I mean they they kind of insinuate it, but they make it pretty obvious in the in the movie that Rebecca knows how Sam feels mm-hmm. about Cat. Yeah, and that's why that's why I'm like he may have said you know we need you know we need to split up, but in her head she's like we were you know this was a foregone conclusion because okay. she called because she calls Cat to wish her good luck. So I don't know, I know if that's a it's a well wish or a warning. <laughs> yeah, I just it's you know this is obviously apparent to everybody, but them or they're just I don't I don't know. I think Kat understands it, but she has her mm-hmm. reasons for holding back, which she she kind of makes clear in the next year. But I guess what mm-hmm. bothers me a little bit is so. 
they go to they go to where Cat works. They go to their dad's workshop, and she mm-hmm. shows him where he works. And he's kind of taken aback because it's clear that it's kind of sad and aggravating. But it's clear he doesn't respect her. Yeah. Well, the, career choices, I guess. Oh yeah, no. Well, he he doesn't know what she does enough to respect what she does. He thinks that she's like an office worker, but then again, and, and it's that like they that's why I keep saying like like they talk, they keep up up with each other, but they don't really have conversations because neither of them really know what the other one does, other than she works in the furniture shop and he writes for a newspaper. Yeah, and it, you know he makes that point, which I think is a good. I think it's a good point back to her when she gets mad at him. He says, "You know, what do I do and what do I write?" And it just seems a little unbelievable to me that this is supposed to be someone she's in love with, and she's never read anything he's written. Yeah. Now, if they were just Facebook friends, I would imagine, like, yeah, I would, because <laughs> as someone that writes long movie reviews on Facebook <laughs> to like seven to seven max likes i'm like yeah i understand most of y'all didn't read that that's it's really for me <laughs> yeah i it just seems a little weird now it does lead to a sweet moment when uh you know she walks away and he tells her to take a seat and they sit in the back of the truck and he explains to her you know that he would you lay with me just... in a <laughs> would you lay with me in a bed of fiberglass <laughs> Should we roll around? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> Fiberglass aside, that uh, he thought he knew everything about her. And I don't know what would give him that impression. We only have one conversation a year for 30 years. But I, you know, and I can understand Kat holding back now because she doesn't want to be the rebound girl because you know he's made it very obvious that he's actually crushed even though he dumped her he's crushed by the end of that relationship which I don't get but okay yeah honestly I think what's going on with Kat is um, is very much established in the next scene so when they leave which I think, I mean, I think that scene is still very nice. They have a, they have a mm-hmm. very good conversation that's much needed. And he, like, kind of reestablishes how he feels about her. And so they go back to, they go back to the house and she kisses him. Mm-hmm. So the next year, she doesn't show up and pretends to be sick. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the final Christmas before present day. And... You know, this is one of those. All right, you know, in PG thirteen movies, you know, you're a you know the basic role is even though it's much more complicated, but the understood role is a PG thirteen movie can get one fuck. I think the same role should be allowed for a lifetime because <laughs> at the end of all of this, how she did not tell him to go fuck himself, I do not know. I- I don't either. Yeah. That being said, I think it's all stuff that they need. It was a conversation they desperately needed to have. I mean, she, yeah. so she pretends to be sick and then they're just talking on the phone and playing best life. And the first thing, first thing he does is insult her 
by implying, you know, she's stuck in Illinois. And then when she gets mad at him, he drives over there. Yeah. To, I guess, well, argue in the cold outside of her window. Well, and it's an argument that begins with a playful jab, followed by what was supposed to be a playful jab, but instead was like kind of brutal honesty. Because, you know, he, she calls him an entitled intellectual snob, and he calls her a pathetic, uh, unimaginative townie. And even her, hers had that playful tone of, you know, a playful insult, but his not so much. No, it was very serious. It it came from a real place, and mm-hmm. but I think that when they finally like it prompted her to say what she really thought, which I agree mm-hmm. with. I think this the entire thing on her side came down to the fact that she was confused by him. She. Every time she was with him, it seemed to her like he liked her and he cared about her and he wanted to be with her, mm-hmm. but he always leaves. Yeah, which makes me wonder, and during the rest of the year, does he, he obviously doesn't make time for her. Well, I don't think he necessarily comes back and visits. I think they stay in some type of contact, but it's not much. And no. yeah, he comes back every, you know, he comes back for a few days every single year. And he always leaves, which so I can understand she gets that impression. And then on his end, he wants her to leave. But he never asked her to do that. Yeah. He has never had the conversation of, I want to be with you, but at the same time, I know, and I want you to come with me. He has never said that. Yeah. Now, he's not necessarily wrong in his impressions of her when he talks about her dad and then gets into her mom and... Yeah, it's, that whole it, thing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's the big Lebowski rule of you're not wrong, but you're still an asshole. <laughs> yes, it's it's not that anything he said was incorrect. It's just the way that he said it. Yeah, and he does that. He, and he does that thing of here's the thing you absolutely need to hear here, but at the same time, I am so sorry I just said that. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't, the one thing I don't get is when he's in his truck on the way over there, he tells her, he's like, you know, for once, you're not going to be the one who decides how this is going to go. And I keep, and I'm just sitting there thinking, but really, he's been the one who's decided how this was going to go because he's always the one who leaves. But again, has he given her that option to, hey, I'm leaving, come with me? Yeah. Yeah. Now, the end of the scene establishes that he was going to propose to her, which I think at this point in the movie makes sense. Yeah. So I'm not going to argue with it. I'm not even mad. Like, normally you watch these type of movies and the characters know each other for a short period of time in like a Hallmark movie. And they one of them proposes. And it's mm-hmm. the, it's stupid. Yeah. It's stupid and it's uncalled for. No one is getting proposed after... A week. No. But with Kat and Sam, I would argue it kind of feels earned mm-hmm. that they didn't date because they've known each other their whole lives. Yeah. And also, this is a good place for that argument uh, because it's the end of the second act. So you've got to get these two kids apart. Yeah. And it, it's the... It's the breakup that they have to have before the third act climax mm-hmm. which doesn't happen for another five years which begs the question if he's not coming back to town 
does he see his parents only once a year? Has he not seen his parents for five years? I, that's not even my biggest issue. Like, yeah. it's, it's really not. Um, my biggest issue with this whole thing is that he comes back after five years. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, in contrast to the first time when they were 27, he was ready to propose. Makes total and complete sense to me. Yeah. Fast forward five years, they had a massive argument, and they have never resolved it. No. And he thinks he can come back after five years and propose again. Well, but he, I mean, it is the path of the absolute least resistance, but he did at least send Christmas cards back as a way of an apology. So we don't know if he actually wrote some kind of like long, I'm sorry for what I said, blah, blah, blah. Because by the time she sees him five years later... She's totally cool with him being back there. Uh, yeah, she's gotten past it, and she recognized the things that he said that she actually needed to hear. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's fair, and yeah. it prompts her to, you know, bring her dad and EB together and propose on behalf of her dad to. Yeah, or, I'm sorry, on behalf which, of EB to her dad. Yeah, that was which was both sweet and awkward at the same time because. You know, during the argument, he did say that she was basically holding her dad back, so that way, you know, she remained the most important person in his life, or like she was kind of holding on to some kind of control. Yeah, which it took her five more years to let go of. Yeah. <laughs> After that conversation, so it yeah. took her a very long time to to let what he said sink in. Yeah. While she's doing that, he kind of goes off with his parents and has the conversation with them because he's not well, sure. Well, but you got to remember, he showed up there and it's established in the very first, you know, scenes. He's got a ring. He's going to propose. But while she's running off to hook up E.B. and her dad, your favorite character, Ashley... <laughs> Has already seen the ring and delivers the hard, cold truth of she's already over, she's been over you for years. This isn't a good idea. Mostly because I think Ashley wants to show him her tractor again. I don't know, but Ashley is the most useless character in this entire movie because she's completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I don't know. I would argue Becca and Trevor are also equally useless. <laughs> but I gotta credit I gotta credit Sam with this. He's obviously been planning it for a while because he built the entire like large scale replica of the house he got for them mm-hmm. at their at their dad's workshop. Yeah. Twitch question about that. When did he do that? That's a and good also, question. I mean, and also, how did no one know? Like, obviously, EB knew about it, but he told his parents he bought them a house, so they didn't know about it. <laughs> so clearly, no one else knew about it except for EB. When did he get in there, and when did he have time to do that? And why did it look like a serial killer's lair? <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that he. I thought they established EB worked with them. So, well, yeah, but at the same time, that took more than a day. Yeah, 
I think I think her dad was probably in on it as well as EB. And I mean, maybe he, t- he told them, hey, I want to get in and build this thing, but didn't tell him what it was. I don't know. I think the bigger thing is him buying. She's never left. Mm-hmm. He's established. She's afraid that she doesn't want to leave. So the correct response to this after having a fight and not speaking in five years is to, <laughs> to, buy, a- <laughs> to buy a house in yeah. New York. Yeah. That has and a just basement. Cr- <laughs> and it's got a basement that's soundproof with a drain in it. And her just laundry. Cr- just her laundry. <laughs> and to cross his fingers that she agrees to move there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I because <laughs> I don't know, and we can, and I know we could ask our friend Sandy, what is the turnaround of on I me I immediately need to un unbuy this house? How is how does this work? I mean, I want to look like I simultaneously think that this ending is so well done. It's one of the it's one of the better endings to a Lifetime Hallmark movie that I think that they've done. I love yeah. the declaration of love. I think it's well executed. That being said, it's of course not without its flaws. Like he bought a house and then he yeah. just says. And I know we've got some things to discuss. Yeah, like I started yeah. this out by making a massive purchase. Yeah. <laughs> Without discussing it with you. Surprise, honey. We're in massive debt. Yeah. Also, where it well, I don't know. He could have, you know, if he's as good a journalist as he is, maybe he saved up and paid for it. You know? Well, I mean that apart, he didn't he he proposes maybe. and he doesn't discuss with her that she's fine just picking up and leaving her career and moving to New York. Well, well, wait, are, is this house in New York? It is. Okay. Yeah. And I, that's just, that's the one thing that bothers me about it. So, I mean, so Kat sees the cat sees the replica and she rushes home to talk to him and well, finds him. But in the replica, he does have he has built her a drawing room. So, you know, I guess he's trying to force her into architecture or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fine. And in the grand scheme of things, she's probably okay with it. And she explains to him that she's comfortable, like, mm-hmm. making new choices. So that's fine. Yeah. I'm just saying it's a big, it's a big gamble he takes. He like crosses his fingers and hopes for the best. Um, yeah. After well, five years of not speaking. Again, he sent the apology cards. <laughs> and but, no phone calls. That being said, I still love it. She comes home. She finds the house lit up and sees him under the table they met at when they were four. Yeah. And can I say that every time a character is in the car, be it him driving over to have an argument with her or her racing home, to you know get proposed to in the back of my mind i'm like a truck's gonna come out of nowhere and hit one of them oh god it's a lifetime movie that doesn't happen well and also if you check the runtime as frequently as i do it's like well we don't have time for a hospital subplot (laughs) (laughs) that's fair yeah but you know despite those flaws it's i still I like I said, I think it's one of my favorites because I'm not these movies, they lean towards 
public proposals. Mm -hmm. They lean towards the public displays of affection, the big, big Indian climax. We got to, we got to have the love declaration of love in front of an audience. And this movie, it's just the two of them under the table uh, where they met. And Mm. I think it's well written. You know, I like how he talks about, he figured she already knew this. So, which, I mean, begs the question, like, I I guess I don't know why he thinks she would know that, because he never told her. Yeah. I, I'll have to, I'll have to find it and send it to you, but uh, Jim Norton, who's a stand-up and radio personality, has a great bit about stuff that only works in romantic comedies, and in real life, everyone is just embarrassed for you. <laughs> But but in the movies, uh, he has the line of, oh, you should be with him. He's got a lot of pizzazz. (laughs) Yeah, that, I mean, they they try to have all these intimate moments, and they do it in, in, for example, there's a Hallmark movie I saw this year. Really good movie. I thought most of it was executed really well. And they get to the very last scene. And the leads have an intimate, personal conversation that involves the, you know, final declaration of how they feel. And everybody's just standing there staring at them having this conversation. Yeah. And it's, it ruins it. I, I think the only public display of affection that, um, in my mind, I, I can watch without just feeling so embarrassed for everyone involved is in Scream 2 because everyone on screen is visibly embarrassed for them. (laughs) (laughs) Which, when we do Scream 2, we'll get into. Yeah. The only ones that work, the only ones that work to me, I know it sounds kind of dumb, but are the ones where they think they're having a private conversation, but it's actually public. That works to me because at least I, I mean, I find it less embarrassing for whatever reason because it's an all moment. Everybody is happy for the couple, but yeah. Uh, I, and my favorite one of those is um, I'm not the world's biggest Ellen DeGeneres fan, but on the on her sitcom when she came out, it was accidentally over an intercom, and I thought that was cute and actually funny. Yeah. And technically, I think this one was kind of public too. Like everyone mm-hmm. in the house is hiding, but you know they're you know they're listening. Yeah. And whether or not they can hear, I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, the point is, the moment was just the two of them. And so I think that's kind of what made it work. Yeah. And and for some people, public proposals do work. Because I know, I really can't get into this and get into this on air. But I know someone that had a public proposal. And I kind of helped. And I was part of it. And, you know, at the time, it was very sweet and romantic. And, you know. It worked, but yeah. You know, but public... to me, but to me, if I was proposing to someone, I'm like, it's just the two of us in the most remote, dark corner of wherever I can. Because <laughs> if she says no, the number of people I have to make <laughs> apologies to is even less. Yeah, and it's not that I think public marriage proposals can work without yeah. without any mm-hmm. problem. What it is is it's the conversation leading up to the proposal. Like in a movie like this, where they have to, they have to explain where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. That's the part that I think doesn't need yeah. to be public. Yeah. 
So. Of course, you know, at the same time, I don't want to do anything public. Like, I don't even like have, having happy birthday sung to me in public because there's just this part of me. It's just like, oh, I'm dying inside because that spotlight is on you for just those 30 seconds. And you're just like, I want this over with as quickly as humanly possible. Darn it, Sandy, Steven, if you're listening, cancel the happy birthday parade next weekend. <laughs> It's going to be coming out after that, probably. Or no, before. I don't remember what day it is anymore. Uh, so, anyways, obviously they kiss and the movie uh, The movie ends. So, Well, no, we have one more character having a moment of personal growth in which E.B. decides on Christmas Eve, I'm assuming, oh, that's right. to turn the Christmas lights off. It's just like, that could have been a tomorrow decision. <laughs> but they had, it was symbolic. Yeah, but it could have been, you know, let's cut to the next morning, and as everyone's waking up on Christmas morning, Evie's, like, taking down one of the 17 trees, and she's like, Merry Christmas, uh, I'm better now. <laughs> um, so, John, what did you like about this movie? Uh, the first thing I liked about it is the fact that I like this cast. I think everyone plays off of each other incredibly well. You know, and, I, and I'm talking about our two leads, E.B. and the parents. They all play off of each other really well. And even the kids are pretty good. And the useless characters are good when you need them. <laughs> you know, in being useless, I guess. But, I mean, I, I like the cast a lot, and I like the fact that we see people who whose, whose time in the sun has passed as A-listers, and this group of people who are about to go, like, I, I had this nice knowledge of knowing that uh, when this movie came out, some of these people were going on to huge things, whereas the others have already had their huge things that they can kind of coast on. And then there's the guy from Saw. <laughs> so I, I I like the I, my my kind of favorite thing is the cast, and also there are some genuinely funny lines and moments in this. Like you know the kid doing the Conan thing was hilarious. Even I mean even there was joy even in some of the nonsensical stuff. I also appreciate that there were no 9-11 references in this book. <laughs> it's like, if they have to make an error, I'm glad it was that one. <laughs> what about you? So, I like the cast as well. I actually really liked the acting in this movie. Um, it, I didn't notice it until the second time around, but I actually think this was a really well-acted movie. Yeah, it it didn't totally reek of TV acting. No, I think it actually had some very... I think the acting elevated the material and the mm-hmm. writing, which I think the writing was fairly good for one of these movies as well. Yeah. And the writer, there is next to no information about them <laughs> other than... Because they've written, like, two things. <laughs> and they didn't even write this under their own name. Oh, yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just think it was a good cast with mm-hmm. uh, with fairly good material, and the chemistry between the two leads was just 
It was yeah. really good. I think it was better than your average TV movie acting. Yeah. Um, and I also like... I liked the narrative they used and the timeline they used. I liked that they took each year in this storyline to tell it. Um, oh, I was, it was something I was unique. Yeah, it was something unique. I haven't seen it before. Yeah. I was a fan because that made it so easy to make notes. It's just like, what year are we in? Okay, this is what happened. Yeah, I I don't know. I just, it was something unique. A lot of mm-hmm. a lot of things about this movie were unique, and I I loved that the big moments, the moments you want in a mm-hmm. movie like this, were it's... executed really well. They yeah. didn't they didn't screw them up for the most part. Mm-hmm. Tell us what I like. So, what didn't you like? Um, well, the timeline because. <laughs> We're, I'm still not 100% sure everything's correct uh, in this film. But um, I also think that there was a lot of time wasted when they could have given some other some characters other, more fleshing out or some years more fleshing out. Because as cute as the indoor ice fight scene was, I mean, it really was kind of pointless. Um, and... We could we could have fleshed out we could have sacrificed some stuff to flesh out some of the other characters, okay. and, and and just some of the flim, uh, flimsy uh, logic of this film, <laughs> but and and also even though Sam was right in the argument, I just wish that she had you know used strong profanity at him. Or punched him because, <laughs> and like, and not the playful punch that she's been doing for twenty-five to forty-two years, um, but like a real knock him out punch. That that's really the main thing. <laughs> Mainly, the thing I didn't like about it was I didn't like the fact that they never resolved that massive argument. I'm yeah. I mean, I get it. I. It plays well on a romantic comedy scale. It's been five. It's a big deal. It's been five years since he's been home. But I, I almost think it would have been a better movie if you, if they would have removed that. Uh, I think it would have been a better movie if they would have removed that year where they did the snowball fight and added a year where he mm-hmm. came home and they resolved things. And then he yeah. closes the next year. I think it's a better mm-hmm. movie if they if they actually have a conclusion to a pretty massive yeah. fight. Yeah, because yeah, I mean it is just like because you know I I know people who hold on to things for years, and that is a you know while it was a hard dose of truth that she needed to hear, he literally I mean he hurt her in that moment. And that's not just something you bounce back from even five years later, especially, you know, with the exception. I mean, maybe those Christmas card apologies he wrote were impressive as hell. We don't know because we never saw them. I don't know if there's a Christmas card. I mean, to me, it doesn't even bother me that she's over it. That's fine. Like, she's had five years to cool down. I think it makes perfect sense she's forgiven him. But what bothers me is we don't see any of that, and then all of a sudden he thinks it's okay to propose. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he maybe he's just got a calendar like, all right, five years. That'll, 
that'll be enough time for her to not stab me again. <laughs> but anyways, that's my that's my only issue with it. Yeah. So So it's time for the big question, John. Did you yeah. survive? You know, I I haven't really watched a lot of these TV movies from beginning to end to, you know, pick apart like we do. Um, but, you know, in our friendship over the years, as well as being around my mother, I've gotten more than enough exposure to the made-for-television Christmas movie. <laughs> so I at least kind of have an idea of how they work and have even noticed ones that work better than others. For what this is, you know, a made-for-TV romantic comedy for the holidays on Lifetime, no less. I actually survived this movie. I mean, albeit barely, but I mean, it's not like last week where we get to the, I mean, it is a leap of logic that we would go at the end, you know, from a, an argu- a massive fucking argument to five years later. And it's cool. Yeah, we can get hitched. I mean, I I can deal with that a whole lot easier than someone being dead for the entire time we see them on screen, <laughs> and no and no hint towards that was coming. So I mean, this is I wouldn't say leaps and bounds better than last week's film because I think in my um, letterbox ranking it's about a star to half a star difference between the two because last week's film was much better made i mean this is made on the tv budget but for what it is yeah it's fine if i had i mean i watched this twice and at no point was i did i really was i really miserable i guess this is what i'm trying to get at so it's fine i i'm sure much worse exists out there. Uh, it does. I can I can uh, assure you, yeah. it does. Yeah. Now, would I watch this again on my own? No, but if, you know, I, I, I lost an argument and we had to watch this, uh, you know, at a get-together with the rest of our friends, I, I would be fine. Well, good. Yeah, um, so what about I you? Think, <laughs> I, think, I think it's safe to say um, it was my pick. So, yes, I survived. Yeah. It's it's actually a I only would do it you know I only watch it at Christmas time but I have a couple of these type of movies that I will revisit mm-hmm. and this is this is on my list of I like to watch it you know once a year yeah and, and you know I I have my Christmas movies that I watch once a year granted a couple of them are slightly more violent than this. But it's, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, knowing what you could have thrust upon me, especially for this first one, I mean, you, you did take it very easy on me. <laughs> but the question remains, but the next question is, what are you doing to me next week? <laughs> well, this is subject to change. Um, so... We may have some changes coming up to our holiday schedule, which when uh, depending on schedule of some guests, we may or may not have on. But next week will either be the holiday or Black Christmas. And when we do Black Christmas, our friends Mindy, Mindy, Mark, and Karen will hopefully be joining us. So, who y'all will remember from 
Sammy's favorite movie that we've covered so far, Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> I prefer to think of them from screen. Right. <laughs> it's just, you know, for the drinking game, we have to mention that. Which I, I should look up if uh, Felissa Rose from Sleepaway Camp has done a Christmas theme movie, and we should do that one year. Uh, so, you have anything you want to plug or shout out this week? Um, I do have, um, I do have one thing. It's a book, actually. So, a I book. heard about this book on. Yes, it's a book. I heard about this book on a podcast <laughs> that I mm-hmm. listened to called Fostering Hope, and it is. Actually, the podcast is run by uh, a Hallmark actress, and she mentioned she had uh, she she's a foster parent, and so she speaks with other foster parents, and she speaks with people uh, part that are part of the uh, part of the community that works with foster kids and uh, are part of the foster care system. Yeah. Well, she had a she had a man on named Robert Mooney, and he has written a book called "The Foster Kids Road to Success." He is an attorney who was the foster kid himself, and he talks about his story, his story, and how he became a, you know, how he went from being a foster kid and how he went to law school. And the book is not a biography; it is more of a here's my piece of advice. It's written mm-hmm. specifically for kids in foster care, mm-hmm. but it's incredibly interesting it's very um it's a very inspiring story and he started talking about how when he was six years old he ran the honolulu marathon because at six years old he didn't understand what a marathon was and he didn't understand why anybody would think that he couldn't do it Hmm. he just didn't he didn't have the concept of in his brain that he couldn't achieve something uh, so that's how it starts out, and it's a very good book, so I highly recommend it. Ah, that actually sounds pretty interesting. Well, Sammy, uh, thank you for <laughs> making me sit through uh, a Lifetime film and coming out rel- relatively unscathed. <laughs> and thank you all for listening, and yeah. as always, please rate and review, even if it's a bad review, there's such a thing as an algorithm, so... We accept any constructive criticism. Yes. And if you have any notes, suggestions, or films you want, want us to cover, or corrections for me, uh, uh, shoot us an email at survivingchickflicks at gmail.com, and uh, we'll call you out on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and until next week, uh, we'll see you later. And Merry Christmas. Surviving Chick Flicks is created and hosted by John Baggett and Samantha McDaniel. Our audio engineer and editor is Cody McLean. For an ad-free version of the show, please visit patreon.com slash survivingchickflicks, where $5 a month gets you an ad-free version of the show, as well as our manly movie of the month. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. All opinions are that of the hosts, and no copyright infringements are intended. Surviving Chick Flicks is a Circle of Jug production, all rights reserved.